Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the New Books and Gender Studies podcast. Uh, my name is Kyle McMillan, and I'm here today with Professor Monica McDermott. Uh, she is an associate professor of political science at Fordham University, uh, and we're here to talk to her about her new book, Masculinity, Femininity, and the American and American Political Behavior. Uh, professor, how are you doing today? Great. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing just fine. How about let's start with just kind of a broad question of your academic background and what kind of led you to write this book in particular? That is a good question. Um, I'm not even sure of the answer myself, but um, as far back as graduate school um, at UCLA, way back in the 90s, I started looking into sex stereotypes and how women candidates are viewed differently from men candidates, and that was the beginning of my academic career. And then I sort of moved on, but at one point I went to teach a women in politics class at Fordham, where I am after having taught at um, the University of Connecticut for quite some time. And I noticed in my class that these um, gendered personalities of masculinity and femininity were, they seemed to be determinative of my students' political positions, which is something that shouldn't really be surprising because psychological literature has often linked these aspects to behavior, but no one had done it in politics. And that struck a chord with me because of my history of working with sex stereotypes, and it made me start to look at gendered personalities, which are sort of taking a step beyond biological sex and starting to think about gender in a broader sense. Right. So before we kind of go into the uh, meat of your argument in the book, do you want to quickly define some of the terms that you're going to be using, uh, such as sex, gender, gender personalities, uh, gender conformity, those sort of things? Absolutely. So the way I define it, um, I take it the way psychological literature does, and not necessarily the way political science literature does, which is I use the term sex to refer to only biological sex, so whether you're a man, whether you're a woman. And, of course, there are other um, situations out there, but we study those two main ones at this point. Um, And then the term gender I use to refer to social identity and the idea of who you sort of or what you sort of affiliate with in terms of gender rather than biological sex, which is not restrictive of how people see their gender. And then gendered personalities are the measurement of the level of masculine and feminine traits that an individual has in their overall personality. So, for example, masculine masculine traits are things like um, being aggressive, being competitive, being um, likely to defend your beliefs very strongly, things that we typically associate with men 
but which are actually also present in women. And then feminine personalities are being caring, loving children, compassionate people, things like that, that we have typically associated with women, but which are no longer restricted to women. Might not have ever been, but definitely are no longer restricted now. So gendered personalities cross biological sex. And then gender conformity, which is another thing I look at in my book, is when, for example, a female is extremely feminine and very masculine, and a male is extremely masculine and not very feminine, which actually is not the majority of the American population. Far more people are, their gendered personality defies what we would expect for their biological sex. But conformity is people who are what we would expect them to be in the traditional sense. I hope that helps. Yeah, that, I think that's a really helpful kind of place to start. So when you set out to write about uh, American political behavior, um, what kind of hypotheses did you start out with? What kind of things did you expect to find in accordance with these gender personalities? This is, um, it goes back to the 70s and 80s when people first started, well, really the 80s, when Republicans really became the party of toughness, which was under Ronald Reagan. Democrats had always been a party of compassion, at least dating back to the 1930s and to Franklin Roosevelt. So the parties developed these masculine and feminine aspects over time, making the Republican Party the party of masculinity, the Democratic Party the party of femininity. So my first broad hypothesis was that masculine voters, voters who were more masculine than feminine, would be more likely to be drawn to the Republican Party and those who are more feminine in our society would be more likely to be Democrats. And then I sort of went on from there to other various hypotheses. But that was the general broad idea that I developed. So what uh, sort of methods did you decide to use when kind of testing these uh, more broad hypotheses? I developed a survey um, I am a survey researcher also by training, so that tends to be the method I go to that in experiments. So I developed a survey that measured using standard psychological measures that measured masculinity and femininity along with political views, and then I put it all together statistically. Do you want to go into, um, because you talk about kind of different uh, surveys that you kind of borrow from or use and kind of... Uh, mold them into your own survey that cre you created. So do you want to kind of go into that for a little bit? Sure. The, so the measure I used is what's called the BEM sexual inventory, and that was developed in the 1970s by Sandra BEM, and it is the version I used is what they call the short version, and it is 10 personality traits on which people rate themselves in terms of whether that is true about them or not true about them. And so there are 10 feminine items and 10 masculine items. And from that, you develop a picture of an individual's personality, whether they are more masculine than feminine, more feminine than masculine, equal levels of both, which we, we call androgyny, or equal, excuse me, equally high levels of both is androgyny, equally low levels of both is what we call undifferentiated. Not the most flattering term, but that's what the psychologists tend to use. And so I took the BEM measure, this BSRI, 
and I put it in a survey and then used sort of standard political questions that some come from the national election studies, some I wrote myself, um, some are just popular questions that the media asks very frequently, and I put them all together to make sure I could capture a political picture of individuals in addition to the gendered personality picture, and so I could test those against each other. So I think uh, what you were getting at in a broader sense uh, with kind of uh, where this is intersecting with political behavior is the folks that are more masculine gravitating toward the Republican Party, folks that are more feminine going toward the Democratic Party. This mm -hmm. seems to be uh, somewhat how the parties kind of view their message, but you kind of uh, bring out a distinction that I think is key between uh, what political scientists and campaigners have looked at in terms of the sex gap versus what you're saying mm -hmm. is the gender gap. Yes, back in, and again, this goes back to Ronald Reagan. We can attribute just about everything in masculinity in the Republican Party to him. Um, in the 1980s, people noticed that a gap opened up in, starting in the 1980 election and looking at presidential and congressional elections, but more frequently presidential, that women were far more likely, in most cases statistically, significantly more likely to vote for the Democratic Party than men were, or you could say it the other way around, which some researchers do. And that's what really got me thinking that this masculinity, femininity idea might have some traction because since everyone had been looking at biological sex in political science for quite some time and not considering the options that psychology was offering, which included gendered personalities. And since our society has come so far in terms of what men are allowed to be socially and what women are allowed to be socially, it seems to me that the personalities could actually explain more than biological sex does. So while we were in political science researching why women were more democratic than men, what we really wanted to be researching, in my mind, was feminine individuals and their attachment to the Democratic Party versus masculine individuals and their attachment to the Republican Party. So that, in that sense, I was sort of going beyond biological sex and hoping to find something that captured more and could, at the same time, replace the biological sex argument, which in and of itself never really made any sense to me because your biology in that way should not be determinative of how you choose to vote. So just sticking with this topic for a second, what do you think the implication is then uh, kind of looking at it more as a gender gap versus a sex gap? What are the implications then for political campaigns? Because traditionally, they've looked at kind of women voters as a single block, and only recently have you been getting kind of subsets within that group or vice versa. So what kind of implications do you see going forward? The implications for campaigns are they need to not revolutionize necessarily, but rethink the way they are treating biological sex because they do treat women as a monolith and as more likely to appeal or to be attracted to issues of caring and compassion like welfare and education. And they traditionally view 
male voters as caring about defense, foreign affairs, um, individualism, things like that. And that's not the way men and women are in our society. There's much more crossover appeal in that sense. So it actually provides political parties and campaigns an opportunity to broaden their message and target voters differently. And we should no longer think about sex as determinative because all of these demographic factors that we talk about in the media and even in political science are, if you put them into a model, they can help explain a dependent variable, but they don't really explain why voters that fit into those categories feel the way they do. And so the implication for research and for campaigns is to start to look at things more broadly and don't pigeonhole people by demographics, rather figure out who would be appealed to by masculine message messages who would be appealed to by feminine messages. Right. And you're not just talking about sort of voting behavior. You also talk in one chapter in the book about uh, political engagement. So I wondered if you kind of wanted to talk about your findings when it came to kind of the realm of politics in general and what kind of person is attracted to that sort of field. This is the part of the book that might be my favorite, actually, because it's it's intuitive but it's also just exciting to note and to think about when it comes to getting people to vote. And what I tested or what I hypothesized was that masculine personalities would be more prepared and more interested in being involved in politics. Because let's face it, politics, it's an ugly business. It's not for the faint of heart. It is it's a man, it's a, not a man's world, but in a, in a sense it is. That's what we've always thought of it as. It's dog-eat-dog. Dog, it's negative. It's all those things. And masculine personalities, those are the kinds of things that excite masculine personalities. Competitiveness, aggression, all of that is in the masculine nature. At the same time, the feminine nature doesn't have any of those aspects. So what I hypothesized was that masculine masculine individuals would be far more likely to be drawn into politics in the first place, to be interested in politics, to know things about politics, to want to vote, all of those things. Whereas feminine personalities, it shouldn't make that much of a difference because they're not one way or the other. So it was just the masculine dimension that came into play here, and that's exactly what I found is that the more masculine traits you have, the more likely you are to be interested in, knowledgeable of, and participating in politics. And you touched on that earlier, but I kind of want to dig deeper into the androgynous and undifferentiated uh, categories Mm -hmm. that you talk about. So how do they stack up uh, in terms of uh, gendered personalities, political behavior? um, Just to reiterate, androgynous individuals are individuals that have high levels of both feminine and masculine traits. And it's a very common profile to hold. Um, I fit into that category. A lot of my students fit into that category. People who are both caring and yet ambitious, that's an androgynous personality type. The undifferentiated are those that have low levels of both. 
So really their personalities aren't defined at all in gendered terms in the way that gender is conceived of in this research. So um, now I forget the rest of your question. (laughs) Oh, right, in terms of um, how they stack up in political behavior. So the androgynists are extremely interesting because they have high levels of both masculine and feminine traits. So when it comes to political engagement, the masculine nature takes over in androgynous individuals, and they are extremely interested and knowledgeable about politics. And because their feminine side ceases to matter at that point. When it comes, on the other hand, to who they prefer between Democrats and Republicans, their feminine side wins out, and they're more likely to be Democratic than they are to be Republican. So the mixture of the high levels of both really makes them interesting individuals to watch. The undifferentiated, on the other hand, tend to have effects that just are kind of right below average. They're not as low as feminine individuals say on voting for Republicans, but they're nowhere near as high as masculine individuals because they have these low levels of both. And so they kind of just seem to exist in this mid-world somewhere, and these things don't really define their behavior or their attitudes politically. So uh, when I was reading that uh, those portions about the androgynous and undifferentiated, uh, I was kind of wondering, uh, are there any uh, potential limitations with these categories? Or I guess another way to put that um, would be, are you able as a person as you go throughout your life to shift in and out of these categories? Yeah, uh, hmm, I hadn't thought about that that much. Gendered personality is one thing I can say that the research shows, and my research can't show this because I only did one point in time, is that individual personalities are stable over time. So we wouldn't tend to shift in and out of these categories, although the degrees of our femininity and masculinity may be differently emphasized at certain points in our lives. So if we have both feminine, well, we do have both feminine traits and masculine traits, and the level to which those matter, sort of emphasis of them or the way they take over could depend on the situation that we're in. Now, when it comes to the categories, I did use them in a chapter in the book, but I actually prefer the range of low masculinity to high masculinity and the range on femininity as well, because that's sort of more realistic. When you break things into categories, you're really limiting the way you're talking about things. So saying that all people who are high on masculinity and high on femininity are androgynous, I think is oversimplifying the situation. So while the categories are great and they are used in psychology quite a bit, I prefer the continuous spectrum of low masculinity to high masculinity and the same on femininity. I guess in a in another realm of kind of a continuum, uh, I was really interested when you talk about swing voters or what we kind of conceptualize as swing voters and how it may or may not uh, overlap with the undifferentiated. So I guess my question is uh, how we think about swing voters, do that does that exist or do they exist? And do you think they've been targeted effectively by candidates? Wing voters uh, are a tough concept because 
in political science, we tend to treat them as a block that is similar from election to election. There are people who aren't necessarily that interested in politics, but do tend to turn out, so it makes them ripe for each party to sort of grab them at any given time in any given election, and we think of them as swaying from one party to the other. For example, for a long time, Catholic voters used to be dubbed swing voters. The thought was that they would swing towards Republicans in some elections and Democrats in some elections, and they could be responsible for the win. But what was happening in actuality, and this was part of my research as well, is that they were more of a bellwether group rather than a swing group. So I'm not sure that the swing voter specifically is something we can define very well. Now, what I did talk about in my research is that given that masculine individuals are drawn towards Republicans and feminine individuals are drawn towards Democrats, if you do have equal levels of both, so you're either androgynous or you're undifferentiated, then you should be the kind of person that parties could appeal to in any given election and possibly win your support, whereas purely masculine individuals or purely feminine individuals aren't going to budge from their partisanship in any given election. Right. So kind of shifting gears here for a second, we talked earlier about sex conformity, but you have a chapter Mm -hmm. on kind of sex role conformity. So I was Mm -hmm. wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about that and what does it have to do with political behavior? Yeah, I um, I was curious about, because we have such a focus in my field on biological sex, I wanted to look at how biological sex and gendered personalities could intersect. And it seemed most obvious to me that the way to do that would be through a conformity angle, which again, the psychological research has looked at in terms of social behavior and things like that. But the idea that if you are feminine, highly feminine, and you are also a woman, that places you in a distinct category, in a very traditional category, in fact, the kind of way we thought about women in the 1950s. Now, that's not to say it's a bad thing to be a feminine woman. It's just to say that that puts you in what we call a conforming sex type, which means you are traditional you follow what has always been thought to be, quote-unquote, appropriate for women. And the same thing for men, that the more masculine a man is, the more conforming he is to his traditional sex role, that of aggressor and protector and defender, and all of those things that we used to, to, to an extent still do today, but that we especially used to associate with men again, back in the middle of the 20th century, and much less so today. So my assumption, or I guess hypothesis, was that depending on whether you were traditionally sex-typed or not, that you would expect others to be that way as well, and that that expectation could influence your views on politics and who gets elected politically and who you prefer politically. And so I did research on whether or not an individual's views on appropriate sex roles in politics and society were determined by whether or not they themselves followed 
or had personalities that followed traditional sex roles. And what I found was that that was indeed the case, that the more masculine men are and the more feminine women are, the more likely they are to say women belong in the home, men belong in politics. Whereas those who had more mixed personalities were more likely to say the androgynous, for example, very much so in this case, much more likely to say either sex belongs in the home and either sex belongs in politics. And it really, biological sex does not make a difference in determining how I feel about political place and the appropriateness of women and men and the same with social life. So it was very interesting because it pulled in the biological sex aspect in terms of conformity. And it was a nice, clean way of looking at where people get their ideas about whether women should be in politics. And obviously it has implications for Hillary and all women who run for office. Yeah, and I think that transitions nicely to a few questions I had uh, about the current election, which you talk about at the end of your book. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the first question I have more broadly is, uh, before you get to the conclusion, you have a paragraph where you talk about, okay, these are the type of gendered personalities that lean toward each party. It would kind of Mm -hmm. seem as if the Republican Party, in that sense, is sitting at kind of a better position than than they're kind of portrayed as. Um, you know, after mm-hmm. the 2012 election, we kind of had the the autopsy of the Republican Party, or they attempted to, and they kind of had this vision of appealing to more people. But you kind of suggest that they might already have this kind of built-in appeal with the gendered personality. So I don't know if you want to talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, I I did, and and in that one paragraph, and also I think at one other point in the book, I talked about how. This idea of gender personalities indicates a natural um, advantage for the Republican Party. And part of that comes from the fact that masculinity is on the rise in America. There was a study in, um, I think it was 1997, by Gene Twenge, that showed that over time, men were becoming more masculine and more feminine. Women were becoming more masculine. So... In other words, masculinity, as society progresses, is becoming more and more dominant or prominent. I guess prominent is a better way to put it. So for Republicans, that should be a built-in advantage because they appeal to masculine personality types. So if they just spread their masculine message, they've got a natural advantage, whereas Democrats have the challenge of having to appeal to some of the masculine voters because let's say that some of these masculine voters are swing voters. So Democrats have to have a dual-gendered approach to politics in order to capture the middle and win over gendered personalities that way because since there are so many more masculine personalities now than there used to be, Democrats have to toughen up. They've got to start to appeal to those voters while not scaring off their traditionally feminine base. So their situation is a lot tougher than the situation of Republicans who can just have a one gendered appeal, which we're seeing right now in the in the election, whereas Democrats have to have a dual approach to hope to win. And they've done a pretty good job at that. They have 
had that appeal, but it's not natural, and so it's more difficult to do. So kind of in that vein, uh, you describe kind of what you call a double bind for women candidates. Uh, do you want to kind of quickly describe uh, what you mean by this double bind that women candidates face? Absolutely. Um, so women candidates, they have the the problem because this will come back to bite me, but they are women, so they are viewed still stereotypically as caring and feminine and all of those things. When they run for office, they need to be seen as masculine to a certain extent, especially the higher the office. And so women have a double bind in that they have to appeal to the masculine side of things in order to be a credible candidate. But if they lose too much of their femininity, (laughs) I said that too, that incorrectly, their femininity, then what they're going to do is alienate traditionally feminine female voters who will then see them as violating sex norms. So especially Democrats, you have to be feminine to appeal to the base, but you have to be masculine to be a credible candidate. And that's what I call the double bind, is this difficulty for women that they have to be this way because they're women. Male candidates, specifically male Democrats, don't have to necessarily do that because they can appeal to feminine voters to assuage the base, but they're also men, so they are assumed at the same time to have masculine traits. And so they don't have to do the dual messaging. So uh, you talk in in that portion of the chapter about um, Hillary Clinton and how she is navigating this double bind. So mm-hmm. do you want to go into, you talked a lot about kind of 2008 when she ran against Barack Obama in the primary and right. then kind of leading into the 2016 election. Do you see, uh, well, first of all, how is she navigating the double bind and has her navigation changed this time around? Yeah, I hadn't thought about the change issue, but yeah, it absolutely has. She, um, so Clinton, I shouldn't call her Hillary, that's that's denigrating women, but Clinton has this election, a fantastic way of appealing to both masculine and feminine voters. Part of that comes from what happened between 2008 and 2016, which is her serving as Secretary of State. So Clinton has always been... um, has always had strong masculine personality traits. She is aggressive. She is competitive. She is everything you would expect from a masculine individual. But she's also a Democrat and a grandmother, and she talks now about children a lot, how much she cares about the deserving, the poor, and things like that. And in 2000, and that's a good mix of both gendered appeals. She has a really good way right now of navigating that. She's tough on foreign affairs, really tough, um, but she's also a good Democrat in caring about groups that don't necessarily do that well in our society, which is what Democrats want to see candidates do. In 2008, she had a much tougher time because she was fighting against a candidate in Barack Obama who actually had more feminine traits than she displayed. Barack Obama, I think uh, he, well, I know, he was called by maybe Maureen Dowd, I can't remember for sure, as our first female president. 
because he had so many feminine traits, he was so much of the I feel your pain, ironically enough, the Bill Clinton I feel your pain uh, model than Hillary Clinton was herself. And she was very aggressive in that election. She was very tough. And a lot of people thought she lost her femininity along the way. And when she had an, an incident in New Hampshire where she was speaking with a voter about how difficult it is being a candidate and she started to tear up, a lot of people thought that that was planned, that that was a strategy for her to say, hey, look, I'm still a woman, I'm still feminine, I'm not just, you know, a masculine guy, to put it that way. And um, so that was a problem she had that she didn't navigate well in 2008, that she's navigating extremely well in 2016. And part of that is the grandmotherly talk, the pictures of her with kids at school and things like that, her emphasis on how she used to be involved in nonprofit kids' education um, and all of that. And then her her State Department experience is, by its very nature, adding to her masculine credentials in a positive electoral way. Yeah, I, personally. yeah, I guess when I was reading that portion of the book, I was, you know, kind of nodding in agreement as I was reading because I was thinking, you know, she does kind of have this perfect balance going on, yet she is very unpopular. And I've <laughs> at least seen on, you know, various news sites where people kind of boil it down, kind of hearkening back to the sex gap of, well, people are just uncomfortable that she's a woman, right? That now that it's kind of become more real, quote unquote, to them that a woman might be president, then kind of these uh, anti-woman sentiments are kind of ruling the day. Is that true? Or is it kind of the how she's navigating the double bind uh, with the gendered personalities? This is going to be a very unpopular thing to say, but I don't buy the argument that Hillary Clinton is a victim of sexism. I I just don't believe it. And one of the reasons I don't believe it is that I view Hillary Clinton, she's been in the public eye for nearly 30 years. And a lot of things have happened in that time. And anyone who's been in the public eye for that amount of time is going to have a lot of negative sentiment against them especially when they haven't served you in an office that directly relates to you, because we tend to like our own representatives. So I think that that is Clinton's problem, is everything that has been from the get-go of her husband's career, Whitewater, Vince Foster, Paula Jones, through, up through today with the email scandal. I think that's much more damaging to her than anything having to do with sex or gender. And the reason I believe that is because I believe that also because uh, Clinton has been around for so long that she has actually transcended biological sex, that Clinton is no longer looked at and people no longer say, oh, look, a woman. Now they say, oh, look, Hillary Clinton, because she is so much more than a woman running for president. She is an individual person about whom we have very, very strong beliefs, very polarized beliefs, someone we have watched sort of mature through political life to the point where she is today. And I just don't buy the fact that people don't like Hillary 
because she's a woman running for president. It's just, she's Hillary Clinton. <laughs> she's not just a woman running for president. So that's my view on it. I know most people don't take that, that argument, but um, that's honestly what I believe. And that's not to say that sexism plays no role. Obviously, it could. But I think that there's this confounding effect there where the kind of people who don't like Clinton are also the kind of people we would typically accuse of things like sexism. So, in other words, Trump supporters. And that that confounding variable is leading people to believe that it's sexism, along with the fact that she's the first female nominee of a major party, I think those things lead us to think it's sexism, but I think we're not thinking about it correctly. So in a kind of in a similar question, uh, do you think the, well, it went from conspiracy theory to actual news story about uh, Hillary Clinton's health. Do you think instead of that being an issue of, you know, maybe the sexist view of she's a weak and feeble woman, is it more a failure of kind of her masculine a gendered personality then? I actually do believe that the health issue is uh, sex and gender related. I was, I was actually speaking with my students about this and teaching a women in American politics class, by the way, this semester. So it all dovetails very nicely. Um, that, and, and it's, so you have to make a distinction between sex stereotyping and sexism. The way I've always viewed it, um, and I did most of my career in political science looking at political stereotypes, including sex, and the way I see it, sex stereotypes are just the expectations that we have for either men or women, and they are not inherently negative. They are just subjects and traits and things that we associate. So I don't view it as, so I think that, yes, when the conspiracy theories became true and she fell ill, I think that was very damaging for her. And I do think that people made more of it in their own minds than they would have if she were a man because sex stereotypes make us think of women already as too weak for the job of president. And that's the kinds of political stereotypes that have been around forever is that men lead and women don't. Men are strong, women are weak. And so she fell into this stereotype because of her health issues. But that doesn't mean it's sexism necessarily. It doesn't mean people dislike or have a bias against her because she's a woman, or it doesn't mean it's negative. It just means that, okay, she fits the stereotype. Look, it's our expectations. That's what we would expect from a woman. She would be weak. But that doesn't necessarily mean I don't like women, which is the way I view sexism as a pure form of bias rather than a content-based assumption. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. So uh, transitioning to the other candidate, Donald Trump, uh, obviously you point out uh, in this book as well as other pieces that you've written that Donald Trump is kind of appealing to this um, kind of whether you want to call it hegemonic masculinity, uber masculinity, some kind of uh, ex exuberated form of masculinity. And uh, <laughs> I like why, that term. 
Why do you think this appeal is becoming uh, so kind of uh, strong, other than the fact that you pointed out that kind of masculinity is on the rise? Uh, in my mind, I kind of linked it to uh, Michael Kimmel's uh, Angry White Men, his most recent right. book. So kind of this, uh, how white men are kind of coming to reckoning with this uh, kind of threaten of their position. Uh, do you think it's, it has something to do with that? Or is it more along these lines of gendered personalities? Well, that argument, the argument that it's angry white men, I think... It has some credibility, but the main problem I have with it is that, again, it's looking at demographic factors. And I don't believe, in my heart of hearts, that demographic factors actually influence the votes. I believe it's things that are associated with the demographic factors that do that. So white men, yes are much more supportive of Trump. They also happen to be much more masculine. But what you also find, and this gets lost in all of the the jabber about Trump doing so poorly with women, is that masculine women are flocking to them. <laughs> so it's not sex. It's not men. It, it could be angry white men and women. But the fact of the matter is that he is appealing to the masculinity in all of us. And a lot of us have it. And so it's not just, it, it's nice to have a nice profile of a voter. And, you know, we've had soccer moms. We've had all of those suburban dads, all of these sort of nice little categories that we can call swing voters or say they're supporting a candidate. And it makes a good story. And there's truth to it in some way, but it's not getting at what is actually driving people. And that's what I am more concerned about is what is the fundamental nature of an individual that is making them make the choice and do the actions that they're doing. And so, yes, there can be some context. If you're doing less well economically now than you were last year, yes, that's going to make you care more about the economy. There's no doubt about that. But I don't think that that necessarily is the case for every individual. I think there are other underlying facts that make you susceptible to changes like that, to con contextual shifts like that. And it's those underlying factors that I'm interested in because I believe those are the true cause of what's happening rather than just a correlate of what's happening. So I think the... Yeah, angry letters. <laughs> so I think the the puzzling thing to many kind of casual observers of politics is how do we go from two terms of Barack Obama to Donald Trump as a candidate? So you mentioned earlier kind of Obama by, by some being viewed as uh, more feminine. And mm -hmm. so... With him winning two terms is, and with Donald Trump's popularity kind of being the same zeitgeist, if you will, was it more of what Obama did do or what perhaps Mitt Romney did not do in that appeal to masculinity? In Obama's case, and this has become almost trite because people say it all the time, but, but I think it's true in that turnout was a huge factor. And people came out to vote in both of Obama's elections, but more so in 2008. 
people who we had never seen at the polls before showed up because Obama motivated those people with his message and his persona. And I think a lot of that was getting voters who aren't uber-masculine to turn out, and that includes uh, African-American men who don't have the same levels of masculine uh, traits that white men do. Um, and so I think that was part of the appeal is that he was getting people who normally don't involve themselves in politics to get involved because they cared about him. Most people don't believe that those voters are going to turn out in this election because they don't necessarily care that much for Hillary Clinton. They view her as a standard politician um, and and aspects like that. Sorry, I was I don't want to give away any polling data that I shouldn't be giving away. But um, and with Trump, he's appealing purely to our masculine nature, but he's doing it in a very sort of visceral, some people call it reptilian way, which is to generate more of our masculine side to sort of spark it more than I think normally happens. And that is why he is doing sort of why they're tied right now, which is mystifying everybody. And I have to say, I wouldn't have predicted this either. Um, And to some extent, the fact that Trump doesn't show any feminine values whatsoever is strange in terms of the level of support that he has right now. So I'm not sure. I'm actually about to do a study looking into this more on gender personalities and the election. We can talk again once I get to the field. But I, Trump is purely masculine, like I said, and to, as you said, exuberant masculinity, I think, which is a term I might steal from you. <laughs> and it's, it is exciting voters in a way that the Republican Party has not excited voters in a long time. John McCain was a war hero, um, all of that, but he wasn't forceful. He wasn't masterful. He wasn't charismatic, and we all know what Romney was. Trump is completely different. He is exciting masculine voters in a way that kind of hasn't been done since Ronald Reagan. George W. Bush a little bit, but Ronald Reagan especially. And so I'm not comparing him to Ronald Reagan in any other sense besides he gets at a part of the masculine personality that other Republican candidates haven't done, and he is generating support that way. Okay, so I have I have two questions in my mind that aren't very related, so bear with me. Uh, my, <laughs> my first question is, so we've touched on a little bit kind of how these gendered personalities intersect with race. So I, th- yeah. I think that a lot of the times when um, p- either political pundits or political scientists talk about demographics, we're talking about racial demographics, right? So mm-hmm. how does your research kind of either problematize or kind of maybe further complicate that view? Um, I, I don't know if it complicates it. I actually think in some ways it, it doesn't eliminate the effect of race, looking at gendered personalities, but it does mitigate it. So there definitely is what we talk about traditionally as a racial gap, which let's face it, there's a huge one in terms of affiliation with African Americans in the Democratic Party and not with the Republican Party. But when you throw in gendered personalities, some of that goes away. 
And what that says to me is some of the issue with race is not really about race, except to the extent that race influences your personality. Because they're both sort of um, what some 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 researchers have called primordial connections. So race you are born with. You can't get rid of that. Gendered personality, a lot of that you're born with as well. Somewhere around 50% of that comes from genetics. The rest comes from socialization, which, of course, the socialization is happening at the same time as the racial socialization. So, again, there's so much more to race that is so much more complicated and historically and currently and other factors that are at play, but there's definitely a part of race that can be attributed to gender personalities, making it more gender personalities than it is necessarily black, white, Latino. Okay. So I guess now transitioning to my unrelated question, uh, going back to kind of Donald Trump and kind of the Republican Party writ large, a lot of people have maybe uh, irresponsibly so uh, speculated that the Donald Trump campaign is kind of a beacon of the end of the Republican Party as we know it, which I think is probably not true, um, mainly because, you know, he's at least in current polling getting around 40% of the electorate, right? So what what do you think this is signaling in terms of the future of that party generally? Hmm, interesting. Um, well, I can't speak to issues. So say, for example, Donald Trump does get elected. I can't speak to what he is. No one can actually, I'm not sure even he can speak to what he's going to do while in office. So I think partially that's what people are saying is going to contribute to the demise of the Republican Party, because you're electing someone who used to be a Democrat, whose positions don't necessarily align with the traditional Republican Party. And that's what Republicans are concerned about a lot. When it comes to personality, he is the perfect Republican candidate. He is so strong and tough to, to a degree that most people criticize. I mean, he criticizes cold star parents. He criticizes African Americans. He does his best to alienate just about any group out there that isn't directly tied to him. But that is so masculine that that is the red meat that Republicans live on. And I don't mean the insulting, that's sort of just part and parcel of his taking it to an extreme that we haven't seen before, but it's still masculinity. It's still raw masculinity. And that is the Republican party. So again, not the insulting part. I'm not saying it's Republicans or racist, sexist, any of those things. I'm saying that the masculine side of Donald Trump and what he is revealing in terms of his own personality is what the Republican Party has been lacking for quite some time and is what a lot of Republicans were looking for, which is why he's the nominee. So I don't see the demise of the Republican Party from this in that sense. In his candidacy, what he were to do elected as president, that I really can't speak to because, yeah, I have no idea. Right. Uh, So I guess because this uh, episode will come out before uh, the first debate, I was I was hoping to ask you sort of what do you expect on the debate stage kind of 
you know, is, you know, Donald Trump in previous debates have has kind of been doubling down on this exuberant masculinity, right? So mm-hmm. how will that kind of juxtapose with the sort of masculine feminine double bind that Hillary Clinton is trying to navigate? There is uh there was a debate that Hillary Clinton was in when she was running for New York Senate against um this young upstart uh Rick Lazio. And in this debate, I don't know if you know about this, in this debate, Rick Lazio actually left his podium and as he was criticizing Clinton and strode towards her. And that was seen as completely out of bounds for a man to be what people call menacing a woman in that way, despite the fact that Clinton has plenty of toughness herself and she probably didn't see it as menacing in any kind of way. It was just kind of odd behavior. And he was driven out of the race, basically, for that, because it was just inappropriate behavior. So what I'm going to be looking for is the extent to which Trump's aggressiveness, which we know will be present and obvious, the extent to which he focuses that directly on Hillary Clinton or the extent to which he just, like, at his rallies, just kind of expresses it towards the world in general. And I wonder if Hillary, if people could see him as being inappropriately aggressive towards her because she is a woman. I would tend to think not at this point in the game, but he has very little control over his aggression as far as I can tell. And I think if he turns too much on it, on her directly, that it could be damaging to him. And I think if she can keep her cool, if she can stay cool and tough, which is more preferable to voters or is preferable to voters than sort of crazy aggressive toughness and out-of-control toughness, so if she can keep her cool, show her masculine side, but not ignore her feminine side in terms of the policies and issues that Democrats care about, I think she's going to come off very well. Let's face it, she's a champion debater, so and, and he's a loose cannon. So one would expect she's going to do better, but one it has expected that the entire time, and Trump continues to defy expectations. Right. So that's my way of saying I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess a related question, I just thought of this. Uh, what do you think then, you know, because aggression is kind of uh, – in this lexicon of uh, masculine traits, uh, a lot of uh, talk uh, in the news has been kind of focused around the uh, potential unpredictability or like unstableness of Donald Trump. How does that relate mm-hmm. to aggression in terms of like a gendered personality? Is it a sort of double bind, if you will, or is this something completely different? In my view, um, it is masculinity taken to an extreme. None of the traits in the sexual inventory, as as I've been measuring uh, gender personalities, is inherently negative. Aggression and assertiveness are great things, and you need them to succeed in life. Uh, Things like that are important, and caring about your fellow American, that's also important. But those things, when they go to an extreme, can turn negative. And I think that Trump's 
unpredictability is his personality. And I think it is, it does stem from his masculinity in that aspects of masculinity, for example, one of them is that you defend your own beliefs. And one of Trump's um, signature, you know, bouncing off the walls moves is when he feels attacked. And that's when his unpredictability comes out. And that's when he says horrible things about Megyn Kelly or about John McCain or about uh, military parents, things like that. So that is just too much masculinity. But it is still masculinity, the aggressiveness, all of that as well. If you take it way too far, then, yeah, who knows what you're going to get because you're going to go to extremes on those things, and it's going to be unpredictable and a little bit unstable. Right. So I have kind of two final questions for you. Mm -hmm. Um, The first one is kind of uh, more broad about the book. Uh, If there's kind of one thing, one sort of main idea that you'd want people to kind of take away, what, what is that kind of driving force behind the book? Now this will get me into so much trouble, but the driving force behind the book for me was that biological sex is not all there is to gender and politics, that it's not even necessarily what we thought it was. And in fact, I show it's not what we thought it was. That there is a broader way of looking at gender and politics that is so much richer, so much more intuitive, so much more potentially causal that we've been missing, that psychology has developed so wonderfully that we have completely ignored or just missed. And that's what I want people to get out of this is that that simple biological distinction that we use partially because it's easy to use in models and partially because we've just been doing it and never questioned it, that that isn't the driving force between in the gender and politics sort of milieu, if I can put it that way. Yeah, I, I would agree that that's kind of the, the main takeaway that I uh, gathered from the book as well. Uh, so my final question is uh, for people listening to this interview and they're really taken by it what are three books uh, that you would recommend that uh, people should check out if they're really interested in this topic I can think of two off the top of my head that aren't hmm. I guess it depends on the approach your interest in the book so If um, your interest stems from personality research, then there's a great book from Cambridge Press. It might be called Personality in Politics, but it's by Jeffrey Mondak, M-O-N-D-A-K. And it's about a different dimension of personality, sort of the more popular one that political scientists have just started to use than gender personality. But if you're interested in personality politics, that would be the way to go. Two great books if you're interested in the gender and the women in politics angle, too, that have gotten at the idea that maybe candidate sex isn't really what we thought it was, which sort of helps get to the point that society has changed. And one is by Jennifer Lawless, and I think it's called Women on the Run, and that's also by Cambridge Press. And then the other book is by Kathleen Dolan, 
and it might just be called Women in American Politics. I'm sorry, I can't. I can picture the cover. It's a high heel with the Capitol Dome underneath it, and it's by Oxford Press. So those are books I would absolutely recommend. Okay, well, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I just want to thank you for coming on the program, and is there anything that you kind of want to plug in terms of your upcoming research? I know you kind of talked about uh, things with the upcoming election. <laughs> well, first of all, you're welcome, and second of all, yeah, people can be looking for, I'm not sure what outlet um, we'll use, but a colleague of mine and I are about to do um, an MTurk survey, actually, which is a survey researcher, makes my stomach turn, but, you know, money is what it is in academics. So um, I will probably be turning that out in some um, article, news article at some point, or an op-ed piece. Um, it's for academic research as well, which, you know, takes years to get done, but we'd like to also get it out before the election because we are testing the masculinity and femininity effects on Trump and Clinton support and all kinds of other interesting things related to the, to the election. So, yeah, if you're interested in that, I guess keep an eye out for my name and maybe something will pop up before the election. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I, I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. I did. It was wonderful. Thank you for your great questions and for letting me babble on about my book, which is obviously my first love right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no problem. Take care.